0: hearty welcome to the Ducket list a hundred natural conversations you will want to hear to help you thrive just before we get going i wanted to give a nod to our fabulous sponsor Anola. that's o-n-o-l-l-a you can find them on your favorite browser enola is the one-stop shop for seasonally led natural organic and sustainable beauty well-being products and curated themed gift sets thank you very much Anola. My guest today used to be a hot pink, tight-like we're wearing courier. It was Sydney, and it was the 80s. He went on to become a much more sensible political correspondent for The Guardian in London, commentating on issues from politics to health. He's also just written a book, The Miracle Pill, Why Sedentary World is Getting It All Wrong. Are you sitting, or should I say, standing comfortably? Here's Peter Walker. I hope you enjoy it.
1: The Listening Rituals of Modern Intelligent Women have for years been one of humanity's great mysteries. Fortunately now, females have an authentic podcast where natural conversations can grow and flourish. Welcome to The Ducket List.
0: Hi Peter, how are you?
1: I'm really good. Good,
0: lovely to have you on the show. We haven't met each other physically, like a lot of people, uh, you know,
1: since the COVID
0: <laughs> pandemic hit. Yeah. But, um, and I think the acronyms are IR, I don't know, what's it, in the flesh or in real time, or I'm getting lots of emails oh, from, like yeah, yeah. saying, can't wait to meet you, IRF, in real flesh. I'm kind of like, okay, fine. But <laughs> I knew I would like you because your amazing book, The Miracle Pill, the way you've written it and how honest and down to earth it is, but how really well researched is, I just knew you were a good guy, so don't let me down, will you? Oh, you won't let me down, will
1: you? <laughs> I, I definitely won't. Even if I'm not, I'll try and pretend to be nice yeah. over the course of this podcast.
0: You've got a nice voice and a great way of writing, so it's all going well. And <laughs> I, congratulations on your book. It really Thanks is, very much. Um, I, I don't think I've ever said this before, but it's a page turner. I mean, for a book that is based on health... To be a page-turner <laughs> is no mean feat, so congratulations. Well,
1: that's great. I'm not an expert in that field, unlike you, so so that's really, really nice to be uh, told that. Thank you.
0: Well, I think that's probably because the blinkers are off, so it makes it really fresh, and I think you, you do say you're not an expert, but being a political correspondent for The Guardian um, in London, and you're obviously a commentator on those issues, political issues, politics, but you also write a lot about active living and health, and I think... What a wonderful skill set that is, because taking into consideration and, you know, let's not get too political about this because we put our blood blood pressure up, which is not the point of your book, <laughs> um, is that political decisions really do manifest in our lives, don't they? I mean, they make such a difference. And we've certainly seen that in the last year or so, how the political decisions can affect our health mentally and physically. So, Tell us, when did you start writing The Miracle Pill? Because why a sedentary world is getting it all
1: wrong is pretty darn good timing, if you ask me. It was basically luck from the timing point of view. Um, I'd written another book about three years ago about cycling in terms of uh, everyday riding, not kind of sports riding, but about why having you know, more bikes and fewer cars in cities and towns is a good thing. And one of the areas of that, one of the chapters of that, was about the physical uh, inactivity crisis, which was something I vaguely knew about, but hadn't looked into at all. And writing the chapter, I was completely astonished. I mean, at the time, the stat that Public Health England put out was that 85,000 people a year die young. This was in England because of uh, inactive living. I thought this was completely fascinating. There was this kind of pandemic that no one was actually talking about. Mm. So I decided I'd kind of thought about it for about a year and decided I wanted to write some more about it. The strange thing was that when I eventually did get the publishing deal and write the book, the physical process of writing the bulk of the book coincided with the kind of peak of lockdown in kind of March, uh, Aprilish. ish um, To the extent I was kind of you know locked up writing for eight hours a day, and it was very, very strange because public health was suddenly in the news, a subject I'd been thinking about and no one else seemed to be interested in for a couple of years. It was suddenly everywhere.
0: And when you say you were writing, I hope you've got one of those stand-up, sit-down desks, do you?
1: Um, I didn't at the time. What I have now, I'm looking at it right now, the one I'm at work, because I'm obviously, I going to the office occasionally, but I'm uh, home working mainly. Um, I've got a kind of extendable stand, laptop stand, which means I can put it on the table and stand up. And it's set up like that now, because just before I talked to you, I was doing some of my uh, day job work, and I'll type in doing that. I didn't own it when I was writing the book. so. I basically um, I was I borrowed a flat I borrowed an empty flat so I could kind of have space to try and write it Mm -hmm. Um, and I spent a lot of my time kind of balancing the laptop in all sorts of strange places on window sills there was like a cupboard by the front door Um, so I was trying to alternate between sitting down for an hour then standing up for an hour Um, and some days you know I wasn't very good some days I did just sit down and I'd look at my kind of you know fitness watch at the end of the day and i'd like walk like 300 uh, steps um but in particular when i was writing a chapter about how too much sitting down is really really bad for you that's when i kind of did it most but <laughs> it was a kind of it was an ongoing process the more i wrote the book the more i decided to stand up whilst i was writing
0: and that, which is um key by the way did you know you're supposed to stand on because um, we've got them in um in our offices here and you, you need to stand on one of those slightly padded mats so that you don't get too much joint strain did you know that
1: I didn't know yeah, that. So I didn't know that go. at all. Oh, good. I can so t- I should just t- get t- some t- t- kind t- of.
0: Yeah, just, um, you know, you can get those, those that it's sort of a comfort mat, I think they call them, just so that you don't get, you know, if you, because you do, and I think the secret is as well standing up, sitting down, as the name suggests. You don't do just stand up all day. It's, yeah. you know, probably has issues like sitting down all day. So, but, you know, you talk about this as a pandemic and as a crisis you know we are in especially if you read a lot of the lifestyle press and um let's call it the middle middle market press let's be um you know across the board here you Mm. would think that everyone was running you know doing triathlons every weekend and you know doing 8k runs and five hours of yoga and you know you would think that that we were moving more than we actually are. But I mean, it is terrifying, isn't it? The statistics, especially with children. That's a bit that really upsets me about how inactive we are.
1: It is, and it's partly because the activity guidelines for kids are that much more, you know, because the statistic that a lot of people know is if you're an uh, adult, you should aim for um, 150 minutes of moderate to intense activity every week, which is about 30 minutes, five times a day. But for kids, um, well, for kids above about five, you should aim for at least one hour every day because they need to do so much more. They need to build up their muscles. They need to lay down kind of bone density for later life, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it varies from country to country, but about three quarters of kids don't actually manage that at all. And for even younger kids, I mean, for the ones who can walk the age under like four or five, they should get three hours of movement every single day and even fewer of them get 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 that. And, you know, the guidelines basically say that if you've got a kid of about three or four, Unless they're actually uh, asleep, then they shouldn't be kind of static for long periods ever, basically.
0: Wow. I mean, when you say movement, are you you know, some people might say, oh, you know, my son doesn't keep still. He's always on the go. Well, he's moving. It, 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 is that part of what is um, classed as movement? Him, I don't know, walking from one room to another or trying to climb up the curtain pole? I mean, what is it? Totally.
1: Because, I mean, exercise for younger kids doesn't really exist as a kind of concept. I mean, obviously, as they get older, they might play football, even kind of organized kind of team sports. But when they're younger, it's just the usual kind of slightly anarchic childhood diet of, you know, jumping off the sofa, running around to chase a, uh, chase a sibling, you know, chasing after a dog in the park, all that kind of stuff. And it doesn't always have to be, they have to be out of breath. They're obviously a normal childhood regime will incorporate that at various times. But a lot of it is just about being on their feet and not just sat in front of a screen.
0: But that's living, isn't it? I mean, isn't that just normal life? Isn't that being part of a human doing those kind of things? So how come so few are getting what they need? Is it because they're sat watching TV or, I mean, I know there's a chapter in your book about basically throw your TV set away. Are they spending too much on the screen? (laughs) Because I think you even say, um, please correct me if I'm wrong. Is it your son who just stands up eating a cereal that he would rather be standing up or moving around? He doesn't tend to. You know sit around does he is he on computer games is you know the other time what's stopping him move when actually that's what he wants to do is it us adults
1: well it's a mixture of stuff and again i don't want to have this kind of judgmental tone because Mm. you know it's difficult because kids are drawn to screens. i mean my, my, my son really likes kind of youtube videos and stuff like that and we have to have a kind of allocation of a certain amount of time every day and he can have his computer time in the morning or the afternoon you know and it's particularly difficult at the moment because a lot of people, if they've got a job where they can't go in, they're working from uh, home, you know, their kids might not be in school. You know, there was obviously the whole lockdown period, but even after that, there's a lot of schools which are having to close for a week at a time. And if you're trying to do a job, which you desperately need, and you've got kids around who are otherwise like, mm. bothering you, then it's perfectly understandable to sit and down in front of a film. And it's not to say that leisure is totally wrong, that you shouldn't ever do that, mm. but there should just be a kind of mixture. And the reasons why with kids, I mean, it just, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the book about how the whole world has just been kind of designed, not even consciously over the decades, to make <clears throat> movement the less obvious thing. And it's the, it's, the, it's the same for kids, it's like schools too, and obviously schools do an extraordinarily important job in not only educating kids, but kind of trying to level out the um, inequalities between you know, the kids which they have when they first go to school. And a lot of that involves having to teach them things. But British schools in particular have kids sitting down for quite a long time every day. And, you know, there's all sorts of other things, too, that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, a lot more children used to cycle or walk to school. Uh, Now they tend not to particularly, um, you know, outside of the cities.
0: Because and is that safety? People tend to drive. Tra- is that also because my daughter cycles to school? But we're fortunate in the fact that she's pretty much off-road most of the time. Is that yes. do a lot of parents not want their children to cycle because of safety issues and r- traffic on the roads? Is that why?
1: Totally, and it's a kind of perceived safety uh, issue in the sense that I mean the statistics for child casualties on the roads twenty thirty years ago were much 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 worse than they are now. Um, and you know, there's a section in the book where I kind of discuss whether this improved safety on the roads is actually because the roads are safer or just because, you know, we're allowing kids out less. Mm. You know, is it just um, fewer kids injured and killed just because they're just not allowed out without an uh, adult being with them? And this is a really, really vital thing because for kids to grow oh, up, you know, obviously I'm, I'm never going to criticise the parent for you know, doing this kind of stuff because, you know, I'm terrified of roads too. Yeah. But kids at some point do need this freedom to be able to explore the physical world themselves, not just be taken to playgrounds, which are, you know, great, but they're a kind of slightly sanitised space. Yes. And it's not the same as, for example, exploring a wood or kind of even poking around on your own in the back garden. And
0: that's so key, isn't it, for the young ones when they're building? You talk, you talk so much sense about you know laying down muscle and building bone density, and you know certainly it's really important for children, but it's also really important for us, isn't it? Because I don't know if I'm wrong, but you're not twenty-one anymore, are you?
1: No, I'm a middle-aged man, as I say many, many times. Um, and I mean, as a as a man, um, bone density is obviously, you know, it's a kind of worry. But for women, it's a particular issue that once you're in middle age, um, if particularly if you're not active, then bone density can really, really kind of drop. And that's why a lot of older women have um, osteoporosis, which mm. can be an incredibly, incredibly dangerous thing. And a lot of um, incidents, which mean. Older people, particularly older women, are unable to kind of live because they've had a fracture or even, yeah. you know, because they have a fracture, get an infection, then die. In- yeah. A lot of that is connected to bone density.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm um, I'm Celtic origin, so we do have a predisposition to that finer bone. So it's, oh,
1: we didn't know that.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So if you have, uh, you know, some cultures, and it won't just be the Celts, but they're because we have finer bone, if you imagine, you know, our scaffolding, we've got thinner bones, so there's going to be um, less scaffolding within the bone. So it's... Whoa, you really have to be careful. Well, absolutely. But, you know, and I think what you talk about is this down-to-earth level of tweaking things, how you can, um, you know, help with that. So, for instance, I... Uh, do I I hate gyms and by the way I really like the the fact that you said in your book forget the gym that you know you've got these quick and easy lifestyle changes that can slow down your aging process yes please reverse many illnesses definitely and increase mental well-being and you know I'll put on a weight vest and go for a walk you know I mean I've got a great acupuncturist she says put a rucksack on and put a book in there you know put a few books in a rucksack you know and I think and look, I hope I'm not guilty of it but I've written in those more middle of the road you know Middle England lifestyle magazines and newspapers, where for a long time this being active is all about the fancy gym membership, the the the, you know expensive yoga gear, whereas you're saying, and some of the people you quote in the book are really amazing, and and they're not the latest trendsetters by any means, are they? I mean, we're talking post-war experts that have tried to consult with governments to, as you say, make. Movement more accessible in the workplace, in schools. What do you think? Because you're not scared of a bit of lycra. So you're probably one of the, and I say this because I believe you once worked as a bike courier and you had to I wear did, skin tight, hot pink lycra.
1: I did at one point. I worked, How recently uh, in, was this, Peter? Um, Australia. <laughs> no, this was, this was a while ago. This was back in the 90s. Um, so nice. I mean, this is the whole, it's the very 90s. Very <laughs> the whole reason I became interested for guests in activity in the first place was that um, I was someone who was, you know, as almost all kids was a very active kid, had uh, asthma quite badly when I was uh, young mm. and and I kind of fell out with doing any sports when I was kind of in my teenage years, which a lot of people do and by the time I was like 22 <clears throat> I kind of finished university and got a graduate desk job I didn't really do any movement at all um, and in a kind of uh, career change—I still can't quite retrospectively uh, explain. I chucked in the secure graduate job to come a cycle career. and I was in London first of all. I was in Sydney uh, afterwards, which is where I wore the uh, hot pink lycra jersey. If that wasn't a kind of um, uh, exotic uh, enough, look, the, the career company was called Top Guns. We had Top Gun, oh, gun emblazoned across our no. kind of pink lycra chest. And if you didn't start with any kind of body confidence you know, before you did, you, know, you soon learned to kind of uh, pick it uh, up. Um, but the kind of message from the book is very, very much that if you do sport, then that's absolutely brilliant. So, I mean, you know, there is this difference between everyday activity and um, sport. So, for example, I do sometimes, you know, once in a while, take a bike out for a ride in the countryside, you know, wearing Lycra, and that's very much kind of exercise. But a lot of the time, You know, like um, earlier in the day, it was like running a few chores. And I was just on my bike cycling around because it was the quickest and easiest way for me to get around. And that's activity. And that's the kind of key thing because this is something where I didn't have to find time out of my day. It was part of my day and it actually made it quicker. You know, I had to pop to a shop and it was faster for me to cycle there than to walk. Mm. And that's the kind of key thing. If there's ways for people to kind of, integrate this kind of everyday movement into their lives it becomes much more simple but you know the other key is that the world is designed against this it's not necessarily the easy thing to do
0: and on that and i don't want to i don't it's not i'm not going to get into any sort of conspiracy theory don't worry but (laughs) bringing in your political correspondence skill here i sometimes do wonder if the bigger powers at play don't want us to be well that illness is big business and you know we even talk about with your book that this could almost be you know if this if your book was a was a pharmacy it could be the most valuable pharmaceutical alternative drug in the world you know I just look around sometimes and from building design school curriculum uh making it hard to cycle around a city like London uh they don't really want us to be well am I just taking it too personally am i is it cuz i'm so I'm scrutinizing so much because you know you do talk about experts who have been from american presidents to politicians here in the uk real experts in their field have been urging policymakers to make healthy lifestyles easier because if you are a single parent or you have got a child with special needs or you are on a budget or all of the above it is really much easier to make an unhealthy choice to give you a quick fix of joy isn't it and if you get into that state of sitting down watching tv eating badly not moving enough it's very hard to get yourself out of that but it's not being made easy for us am i imagining it or or is there a different sort of energy going on here we need to be aware of
1: i don't think there's a conspiracy of any sort and i think um, politicians would genuinely like to have people be more active in their lives.
0: So Peter, what I would love to know from you with your political correspondent hat on, I sometimes feel that the powers at B, the greater powers at B, aren't making it as easy or accessible as they could to help us move more. Is that just me or do you think it's a thing?
1: I just think that it is just that, A, it's very, very difficult. And I mean, there's there's all sorts of factors at play. I think if you were to ask um, a politician, particularly like a health minister, if they would genuinely be able to push about countries more uh, active, then they definitely, definitely would because the, you know, amount of money the NHS and social care and so would save would just be huge. There's various reasons for it, one of which is just these things take time. You know, for example, um, cigarettes, smoking. You know, the first um, studies linking, uh, linking um, smoking to cancer were in about 1951 and 1952. But, you know, bans on smoking in public places didn't come in from, like the 1990s. Um, and, you know, health ministers were very, very aware of what was going on. It's just they didn't necessarily want to act. And you get into this whole thing which it's quite British, but it's also, I guess, exists in other countries. This fear of being, quote, nanny state of kind of telling people what they need to do and it is a difficult balancing act because you know, these are people's lives um and you know there is an no argument they've got a responsibility for them but it's just that you know when the health odds are so stacked against people there's also a very very good argument for making things as easy as they can so it, it, it's very very complicated and i think you know some countries have done much better than britain it takes bit of political bravery but it's also to an extent just a slightly different political culture some places you know like perhaps nordic countries are more used to having a kind of state which is um interventionist so it's basically enormously complicated
0: Mm. i mean prevention definitely is is better more sensible than cure um but you know you're even saying that that it can reverse being more physical and and you know we talked about you and your pink light dress. so if that's not for everyone um i would actually rather clean my house and go to the gym which i was very pleased to read in your book that that is a good thing and that can be really beneficial and do you think it's obviously having hoovers and washing machines and all the rest of it that we're not being as physical what are the other things that the everyday things we can do a little bit more of that helps increase this physical activity and gets us off our derriers what what else what else is um do you recommend
1: I mean, in terms of kind of domestic stuff, you know, one of the things I mentioned in the book, I'm not arguing for people to go back to this kind of 19th century regime where you have to eat the rugs and, you know, wash all the dishes yourself and go to the shed to get wood into the fire and stuff like that. Because, you know, these were tasks which basically women uh, had to do and took up almost all of their lives. Mm. So there is obviously a real, real benefit in this kind of labor-saving stuff. But we just have to be aware of the fact that overall, this cumulative effect has taken a lot of everyday physical movement out of our lives. In terms of what we can do, I mean, there's various things we can do. One of the best is just any kind of active transport. I mean, cycling is completely brilliant. It's not going to be for uh, everyone. But one thing that a lot of people can do is just to walk a bit more. There is this kind of you know, metric of getting your 10,000 steps every day, which a lot of people know about. But what they might not realise is that even some studies have shown if you get less than that, even four or five thousand steps it can make a massive difference too. And um, one of the keys is that for it ca- to count as moderate uh, activity, and that's to really, really do some good. The steps have to be re- reasonably brisk, right. so it's not just plodding along at a really slow pace. I mean, again, the studies, kind of new studies, are coming along all the time, which show that even you know, walking almost any distance at any pace is better for you than not doing uh, anything. But the benefits multiply when you do walk a brisk pace. So, you know, one thing you can do is to if you say drive into work, you can park your car a couple of streets away, or at the far end of the car park, pick up a thousand steps there. Um, um, uh, you know, and you could just walk to a shop, which is maybe even a mile away. You can do all the stuff like that. Um,
0: I think there was there was other th- something that sticks out um, from reading your book was. When you go to meet a friend for a lovely dinner, to cycle there or to walk there. So, I, I like a bit of reward... I do, I'm quite reward-based. And you even say that you can you can bribe your kid with an ice cream to take them out, get them out and, and active. So again, it's not that sort of smug, oh, I am perfectly fit and healthy. I mean, show me anyone thats and isn't, I'll show you someone very boring. Um, but it is that sort of having a bit of a reward, isn't it? And just doing those everyday things. But I did like that one about cycling to a restaurant, because some of it is just such habitual, isn't it? And who cares if your hair gets wet in the rain, you know, if it, if it drizzles a bit.
1: Well, exactly, way. that's it. And if it is possible for you to be able to, for example, cycle to and from work, you know, even when normal patterns of just commuting to an office, you know, start, then the benefit is completely amazing. There was this um, study which took place about 20 years ago, which is one of the most kind of famous activity studies uh, ever done, which was um, a Danish one which studied an enormous number of people, I think 20,000, 30,000 people, over a number of years. And it found that even when you factored out all other lifestyle factors like you know, diet, class, smoking, even what leisure time exercise people took. The people who cycle commuted into work, who rode their bikes, you know, to and from work. It wasn't five; was an average of fifty minutes each way. Were well, an average forty percent less likely to die over the course of the studies than the people who didn't. Mm. And you know, again, that's one of the things I just kind of put in the book. If you could package that effect into a pill, it would like you know, be a Nobel Prize, definitely. Yes. And yet, this is already uh, here and. Again, the caveat is that you might, you know, live in a city or a town where cycling doesn't feel particularly safe. So that option is closed off for you. But if governments can make it a bit easier, then, you know, really it's this amazing benefit which is there for everyone.
0: Absolutely. And I, I totally agree. And I do think, and if there's anyone you can have a word in their ear, could you please... Uh ask them to make parks more girl friendly because uh, yeah, we're still very yeah. far off. And I know you write about this as well, but um, I know we're very far off from that sort of gender equality of get girls wanting to go on skateboards. I know there's plenty of girls out there that do. I'm not saying there isn't. And there's lots of girls that want to go on BMXs as well. Still not as many as the boys. And if you are... 12 going on 13 as I have daughter the thought of going to a skate park with 99 percent boys is quite intimidating so I think there's something clever needs to be done to sort of make that a bit more accessible um, so mum can go for a jog or something or dad while daughter is on the skateboard or on, on a bike and that they just feel it's a little bit more equal and I don't know what I don't know what the answer is to that maybe that's just time as well.
1: I mean, this, again, is just a bigger issue, which other people have like, written about a, a, a lot, a way that the default for design in society tends to be male. Mm. But this has kind of repercussions in um, activity, too. So, you know, I spoke to this really, really interesting woman, um, uh, Austrian woman called uh, Eva Kyle, who has been the head of Vienna's kind of Women's Design Bureau for that. Like 20 her already, years.
0: she sounds great already. <laughs>
1: no, she was, she was, she was, she was great because she worked for the city council as a planner, and I think about 1931 she set up this kind of photo uh, exhibition, which basically showed the different um, ways that women and men kind of navigated around the city, and this created enough interest that the city kind of commissioned some polling work, which found that even though the vast majority of the transport budget went into roads, um, the majority of people using cars were, were, were men, whereas women disproportionately just used pavements or road bikes. But very, very little money went into that. Mm. And she will definitely say it didn't spark like a revolution, but it got the city to start thinking about things in a different way. And it, and it is often true, I mean, you know, even in Britain, when bike lanes are built, Um, You know, like London's kind of big recent bike lanes have tended to be kind of direct commuter routes along main roads, which take you from A to B, which are fine if you're going from home straight into work and you're not going to be stopping off anywhere. Um, But, you know, those, again, disproportionately tend to be men who do this because women are more likely to have a complex route into work where they stop off at a nursery or drop a kid off at a school and then do that on the way back. And for that, you almost need the kind of network of side streets which are also safe. Mm. And, you know, it, so, so even when active travel is quite good, it can discriminate against women being uh, active. And all the stats show that for you know, the UK and most countries around the world, women and girls tend to be less active than men and boys.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, um, but I mean, some countries get it right. China with like the Qigong, you know, very much community exercise for all ages and you know, genders in, in a place that you can just commune and move. They they get it right. There are, there are there's some really good examples. And I can't remember which country I was in. And you might know, I might have been somewhere. I mean, obviously, Asia, badminton, it's a very popular sport. But I think I might have been Vietnam. And everywhere you look, there was badminton um, on big, wide pavements and people just playing badminton. You know, because we can, I think this is key. And you mentioned it earlier, play. It's almost like we play when we're children, which makes us activity more fun and more enjoyable and more exciting. You become an adult and then you have to exercise. You have to work out. You have to go to the gym. I mean,
1: exactly. it really
0: makes, it's bad PR, isn't it, on moving as you get older. And and I certainly know, and again, this is not a male versus female conversation because we are far better as a partnership. We're far better together, you know, making decisions together rather than one or the other, although we do need more women in charge. Um, but it's that whole thing of men going play. I'm going to go and play sport with my buddy tonight, whereas women have got to go to the gym. It's almost like this punishing, boring thing to do to stay in shape whereas men, it's something to play and socialise. So I think that's quite an important aspect, isn't it, to sort of just re-pivot in your mind that it's something that can be fun rather than a chore?
1: Yes, yes. And again, you know, even if someone does go to the gym and they find it a bit of a chore, but they go a couple of times a week, then their body doesn't know and doesn't really care. You know, the benefits are still there. So I'm never, ever going to discourage Mm -hmm. anyone from going to a gym. But the statistics are that, you know, a lot of people, don't we have this kind of weird split where this kind of fetishization of exercise is more prevalent than ever before. And gym memberships in the UK, there are more than there's ever been, you know, certainly in pre-lockdown times. But, um, but, you know, the stats are that something like one in 10 gym goers more or less never, ever use their gym cards. And as as a population-wide health intervention, it just doesn't really do it because the statistics do show that, you know, 38% of adults are, so inactive that their health is potentially damaged over the uh, over the long term. And, you know, 35 40% of people never do any sport. And and just to have government saying, well, you know, you're an adult, you need to do this formalized uh, exercise, people people just won't. And there's all sorts of reasons why, you know, one of which is genuinely time. People haven't got time to, 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 to fit it into their day. But it's also there's barriers. I mean, there's like stigma and there's studies which are showing that people – they're uh, overweight, find it much more difficult to go to gyms and things like that. So it's this whole idea of this gym as this kind of modern secular temple where people go to parade themselves and stuff like that. That could be really, really off-putting for people who don't feel that this is their world.
0: Yeah, the, the the last gym I was a member of which didn't last too long because I just prefer exercising outdoors and in nature that's my thing um and um are just people taking pictures doing selfies in the gym now i have <laughs> really, never just, seen that oh god i go to a gym with much younger people it's probably my first mistake but um yeah it just it, i just just don't like that i find it very, i find it quite a vain arena and again i'm not generalizing i think it's brilliant if people want to go on go on a treadmill that's great it's just not for me as you're saying it really is about finding something you enjoy but there's a really good quote in your book and please remind me because i don't have a photographic memory and i've written far too many notes as it is but there's a doctor you quoted that says ultimately the one person who can help you is yourself and it is about making these decisions and i love the fact and i know you've said this that your book is a love letter to the importance of movement. And I would take it on. I think it's a 300 page prescription to a longer, happier, more natural life, is what I would say it is. So I think it is.
1: Excellent. That no, that's a good way of putting
0: it. Yeah, and I really do. And I think, though, at, you know, you say this love letter, and I think that word, important love, is when you decide that you are enough to take care of yourself, that you are good enough and deserve to take care of yourself. And actually, if you think about how good moving and exercising and walking or gardening or going for a dog walk with a friend, as you say, whatever that thing is, playing a, uh, the Wii game, um, is that saying it right? So I sound really old. That, you know, the computer oh, yeah. game when you're playing tennis. Yeah, or whatever, yeah. If you're doing something that excites you and makes you move and moves you physically and emotionally, is that maybe, should we be going to the root of this, that, that you deserve to feel good? Because you certainly feel better. Moving and sat down after a big, heavy, sugary, carby meal and watching TV. Right.
1: Well, I think the important thing to stress is, I mean, the quote you use about the only person who can ultimately decide it is ourselves. The quote then goes on to say, however, you know, people people have to recognise that they're in a society where, you know, things have been designed to make it very, 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 very difficult. So, for example. You know, the, the reason that I get, you know, probably the bulk of the activity I do is on a bike, just pottering around, you know, getting, a, uh, getting around places. But that's because I'm kind of mad enough or crazy enough, I'll call it what you will, to be happy to go out on the roads kind of with just unprotected you know, like flesh and bone as two tons of like, steel mm. goes past me at 30 or 40 miles an hour. And, you know, I'm a man, I'm a middle-aged man, so I'm from the demographic which is much more likely to do that. I'm also, you know, obviously someone who cycled for years as a former bike career. So it's quite easy for me. But if I was, say, you know, aged 60 and wanted to change my life or a woman of 21 who'd not ridden a bike for like 10 years, it's an incredibly terrifying prospect. And without, you know, if there's safe cycling infrastructure, then it's really, really easy. But if there's not, then it's a big leap. And a lot of people kind of blame themselves, they say, oh, I'd love to be like these people, like, peddling around, or even just, I don't know, I'd, I'd like to be like these people are able to kind of, you know, march around and walk around and do this and dig their gardens and all that kind of uh, uh, stuff. But there's barriers in people's lives, and, you know, a lot of those are tied into poverty, a lot of mm-hmm. those are tied into the many, many chores that people have. Mm-hmm. You know, again, this same doctor who I was quoting was saying that if, you know, he's privileged and middle class and yes. even he finds it difficult to be active but he was saying what if I was a single parent with two kids one with special needs you know how impossible would it be then mm. and, and and that's I think one of the key messages I wanted to try and get across in the book that you know you should never ever blame yourself and people do castigate themselves as like slovenly or lazy or stuff like that but 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 the thing to do is just to bear in mind that if you can you know even a few minutes a day is better than doing nothing and the more you do the better it is you know there's pretty much no top limit. But but, you know, the research is, is changing all the time because, you know, with these kind of little tiny activity trackers, then scientists are able to work out that even relatively kind of lower intensity bits of movement, even for only ten minutes at a time, starts to do your body lots of good. You know, the dose response curve at that level is really, really, really steep.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's rooted then going back to how one feels about themselves as opposed to tying in how they look because I. I hear what you're saying, but I just don't think that that lower level wall, they will see the physical benefits as quickly. And I think that's also another barrier that you can look in impeccable shape, but actually have a load of health issues going on. Or you could be slightly more rotund, but walk regularly and are probably in pretty good nick. And I think we have to almost democratise, don't we, that attitude to how you look and how healthy you actually are. Um, So I think your book is such a brilliant starting point to get people more engaged, give them some ideas. I like your sort of next steps uh, bits of oh, yeah. the book that give people some, some really nice ideas. But I do think we've got to take it very seriously that if we are wanting to live longer, which we do and which we are, we do need to, excuse the pun, but step it up a bit because we deserve to have health span not just lifespan because there's no good living till 85 if your last 15 20 years are pretty miserable with lack of mobility and diabetes no, and what have you so if we could um i think from your book certainly what what i'm doing with the podcast with brilliant people like yourself who are inspiring people from from the grassroots up actually making it accessible and democratic it's just saying to people come on you deserve to feel good Go on, go for a walk. <laughs> if, if that means walking to pick up a sandwich for lunch, then so be it. You know, let's not, not get all worthy about it. But I think it's really exciting times. I congratulate you again on such a brilliant book. Um,
1: Thank you. That's very kind. Your
0: love letter to the importance of movement. Um, as I say, <laughs> your 300-page prescription to a longer, happy, more natural life. And you can have that, by the way. There you go. You can have that.
1: Um, Excellent. I will. I will... Use that. Well,
0: look, thank you, you know, so much for your time and expertise. And good luck. I hope you will be the first one on Amazon putting up feedback because that's important for us authors. Um, and, um, yeah, let's um, get off our derriers. And you need to get one of those mats. I'll, I'll send you a link of which I definitely do. No,
1: that'd be really those, good. You know, send me the link to one of them, yeah.
0: Absolutely. We want to keep you cycling because so you need to keep your knees your joints.
1: I'm currently joints. standing on a hardwood floor, yes, and I can oh. definitely feel it in my uh, oh. in my joints.
0: Yeah, better than concrete, but, you know, you need to do that. So, um, Only just. Well, thank you, Peter. And by the way, Peter Walker—brilliant surname for an author of a book on being more uh,
1: active. <laughs> so that
0: was all. That was always convenient. So thank you very much indeed. And um
1: well, thank you very I, much I for having me on.
0: I look forward to the sequel. Take good care. Keep going. Thanks, Peter. And you. Bye bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did, and it's opened your mind. Another shout out and thanks to Enola. That's O-N-O-L-L-A. Enola is the home of seasonally led, natural, organic and sustainable living, beauty and well-being. Thank you, Enola. And we have more podcasts like this one lined up with some super guests. So stay close, stay well and keep it natural.